All right, so Exodus, um, Exodus 3 is a really important chapter um, in Exodus because it, uh, it introduces some uh, big ideas to us uh, that we'll see unfold throughout uh, the rest of the book. And so because um, Exodus is so long, as we go forward, we'll have to kind of zero in on specific things. We will not be able to kind of cover and uh, detail um, everything, but this chapter uh, we'll be able to look at um, a little bit more specifically. So as we think about these uh, big ideas and thoughts, right, that we'll engage in over and over again, um, we need to uh, deal with them um, ourselves. Like we need to own them because as God reveals himself uh, in the way that he does things, that matters for you because God has not changed. And the way he does things uh, then is the way that he does things now. And so when we look at the history of Israel, we're going to see a... um, see big pictures of how he deals with us, how our salvation works, uh, how he uh, wants to have a relationship with us, but then also how that relationship looks over time when we are, as he is faithful and we are not. And so um, by way of uh, kind of a little overview, I want to make sure that we have kind of a couple themes in mind um, as we move forward. So themes would be like, uh, is this idea of, of Uh, being highly representative um, of other themes we find in the Bible. Um, And this stuff is repeated over and over and over again, and that's by design. Uh, God uh, has created us. He he knows how we learn. He knows how we receive things. And so um, we try to keep things pretty complicated, but he's always kept things pretty simple. Uh, And so I'm hopeful that as we look at the scripture today that we'll see how he longs to do that. He doesn't want to just tell you. He wants to show you. He wants to give you a picture of it. He wants to put the same places over and over and over again that are symbolic or that are meaningful. And so, okay. Um, So a few of those um, are, uh, so the first one we want to see is theme of God's character. Right, so we want to see what he is like. And so much of what he is like, right, is in what he does, but also in how he treats people, how he um, uh, treats people uh, that are his, and also uh, involving um, us to fulfill his purposes. Uh, Other themes as far as places that are significant. So as we go to uh, the burning bush, as we, uh, where is that exactly? Do they return there again? Why? Right. Uh, what are what is the what are the places that he um, has them in and where is he taking them? Um, this chapter shows us uh, we're introduced to God's name, his proper name. So as I introduce myself to you as Rob, right, that is the name I like to be called. That's my personal name. Uh, and so God has one as well. And so that that is meaningful uh, to him for him to share that with us. And then lastly, um, that we have a template for redemption. So as we think about our own salvation and all the ways that we may think about that or may not quite understand it, that Exodus makes it as clear as possible about how our salvation is one, right? But also how, what, uh, what God's place in that is and what our place is in that. And it makes it crystal clear in my mind um, about how that's helpful for us. All right. So, um, so if we'll look at um, the first section and we're going to... Uh, kind of divide up the, uh, the, the narrative here into two, um, into two things that we're looking at. One thing is where God is going to reveal his character to us in the episode of the burning bush in verses 1 through 9. And the other one, uh, we're going to see, uh, we're gonna see um, 
Oh, where do we have it? Uh, God's plan worked out in the rest of the chapter. So before we do that, uh, so y'all can um, have, uh, just get some, uh, get some energy going. Um, what, uh, what in your mind is the burning bush about? So I just want you to kind of kick around, like what, what is your exposure to this idea? It's very famous. Uh, we've got lots of pictures of it. There's stories of it, but it doesn't have, uh, maybe we have some different ideas about that. So just take a minute around your tables. What, uh, what do you know about the burning bush and its significance? All right, so let's look, at, uh, let's look at our passage of Scripture. Read along with me, chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, now Moses was pasturing the flock uh, of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is, that is significant. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not being burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said to him, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He, also, uh, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. And so I came down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel have come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And so, so far up into this, um, this part in the story, we've just learned a lot about Moses and his upbringing. And here, uh, this is the first time, um, if you hadn't known before, where, uh, where Moses is like uh, approached by God, right? So we're a couple chapters in, and this is the first time that, that um, of what we were looking at. And so when we're th- looking at the uh, burning bush, I want us to think about um, Three things that are represented here just in, this, um, just in the way that God had revealed to him. Think about all the things that he could have done. All the options are available to God here, right? He made everything. He understands physics and chemistry, biology. <laughs> like he can do whatever uh, he wants, enter into his creation. But he, um, but he decides that he wants to reveal himself or get Moses' attention in a burning bush on some mountain out where he pastures his flock. And the first thing I want um, us to understand, right, is that God is powerful. I don't know about you, uh, but in the, the, our day-to-day lives, how many of you need more of uh, kind of a sense of God's power, right? I mean, I, I, my phone does not remind me about God, <laughs> Right, my schedule, my breakfast, like the things that I do on a daily basis, like all of it is just kind of, it just happens, it just kind of works most of the time, right? <clears throat> but we have a severe lack of power because like we, we think about God only in the times when I really, like I've exhausted all of my other uh, options. And so to Moses, he doesn't know anything other than like, Hey, I'm walking around. 
hey, there's a bush on fire. Hey, it's not being consumed. I'm going to go check that out, as he says. <laughs> and so God is, needs to remind Moses and needs to tell Moses that I'm a powerful God, that I, I can do things that um, kind of uh, evade explanation. And I do those to show my power, to reveal myself to you, but I don't want to overwhelm you. Right in 17 chapters, this same mountain where he lights a little bush on fire, which is like a little candle, in about 17 chapters, he's going to light a mountain on fire, the entire mountain. And so if he did that, would Moses have been intrigued or would he have squealed like a little girl and run away? Right in your life, sometimes God comes big, right? Because he needs to. He knows you. He knows how he needs to come at you. And sometimes he comes uh, a little less hot, if you will. And so here, I anticipate that this was exactly the level of power that God needed to express in Moses' life. We're trying to keep you on your toes. There's not buttons back there where he's just kind of hitting zap sounds. And I'm okay. I'm okay. God's power is unnatural. And what I mean by that is it's not something, right, that we uh, are aware of, even though he is constantly doing things, he is constantly active, but we need to be aware of God's unnaturalness, and unnaturalness being the mundanity that we're used to, right, that the world just works, Right, and he is awesome, that he, that he is worthy of praise. The second thing we see here is about God's character. Right, that he is worthy, that he is like fire, right, that he is uh, helpful, uh, that he is, um, uh, can consume, right, if we're not careful, right, but he is here in such a way, and this is kind of, hard to wrap our hands around, but he is fire, but he doesn't consume us, right? That he is, that we are, that he is, um, that we need him, right? That we need the awesomeness that he is, and yet he knows that um, this, this kind of uh, juxtaposition between the awesome destructive power of fire and the awesome healing and warmth and all the other things that it gives to us, and yet it doesn't consume us. We need all of those things. He is worthy, but he does not consume. It talks about this at the end of Hebrews in some different language. And lastly, we see see his power, we see his character, and lastly, we see his values, how he wants to reveal himself. How he wants to give confidence to us. It's not a slam dunk, but it makes sense that Mount Horeb, right, the mountain of God, is the same thing as Mount Sinai that we, uh, where he brings the people out of Egypt. <clears throat> Most people think that's the way it is. There's a couple people that have some other ideas. But wouldn't it make sense that God would reveal himself, right, and begin a relationship with Moses in the same place that he needs to bring them back to? Or he's going to reveal a much larger people. So he has a bush for a single person. He has a mountain for a nation. That God is personal, but he's big. 
over and over again, um, even in the chapters that we've led up to, uh, if you are familiar with chapters 1 through 50 of Genesis or what we've, uh, what we've talked about so far in, um, in Exodus, that over and over again, the places that we are, like where is Eden, right? When he reveals himself to Abraham, where is Abraham? He's in Canaan. Or where is Canaan? The promised land. The places that he's going to judge the people, right? He's kept them out so that their judgment could be the time of judgment or their time of um, could be fulfilled. And then he's going to go in and judge the people uh, of that land. Over and over again, we need to see that the, that the places that he uh, takes us in the journey of, um, of Israel are significant. And this is no different. Right as he sees the burning bush there, it's the same place where Moses will bring the people out of deliverance. If you look at Genesis 15, uh, 13 through 16, he says this about this location. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But also judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and we buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And we find those peoples uh, in the book of Joshua where they are being removed. So we see this then second idea is the place of God, right? We also see that he asks them to take his shoes off. In our culture, when do we ever take our shoes off? When we come home. When we come home? Sometimes. We should. It's gross. Out of respect for someone else's house. Out of respect for someone else's house. So here, the, the shoes off is quite, uh, is quite significant, right? Where we're, he's out in the middle, there's a bush, but he says, like, wherever I am, right, that place is significant. So often we are, um, we, it's not, it's not a, a, a thing that we do in our culture. It's not that many things that we do to honor. When we go to weddings, we try to have, like, a shirt that's ironed, right? The, the nicer the wedding, if we have the means, right, we, we try to dress better, um, if we went to our grandparents' church and we had a hat on, we might take it off. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of um, honor kind of built into us where it is a physical manifestation, right? But is that helpful? Are we losing something by not having that? Yeah, we are. It's inconvenient, but it helps us, right, have a dividing line between this is appropriate here and this is inappropriate here. And God uses this to teach us, to teach us boundaries, to give us, right, external structure. Because in our laziness, in our selfishness, right, we don't want that. Like, it's, it's not convenient. Right, we're all about convenience, Right. But God says in the middle of the, it's like you're, you're in the, it's like anybody sweeping dirt, right? Like this place <laughs> where the bush is, it's not clean, but this place because I'm here is holy ground and you need to take your shoes off. I need to start teaching you now, right, that when you're in my presence is different. Like I, I want to be as intimate, you, intimate with you as you will let me, but there are rules to the intimacy,
we are far too casual with our God. And if there's anything that we want to learn from the pictures that he gives us is that God's not like real strict. That's like Israel, the firstborn son. You know, you like parents real strict. And then, you know, when you get to like the 10 billionth person, right? It's like dad's just tired, right? He doesn't hold the same rules. Is God a tired God? Does he deserve the same respect? <laughs> gotcha. Does he deserve the same respect that the people that he sought then as now? These are good questions for us. What about the fact that if, the, if there's whole, if we've got to take off his feet and we think that that is holy ground, right, where his spirit is, this is the first place that he meets him and God's trying to set this line of demarcation, what about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? That we are being indwelt by the Spirit. Is this a holy place? Do we treat it as such? My life has uh, improved, and my relationship with God has improved as I have let Him reestablish some boundaries that he has longed to have with his people. Then the little things, right, there's going to be 8 million little things, but they're real simple. That places matter, that he is set apart from us, that longs to be intimate with us. We go further, we see the burning bush, we see shoes off. Verses 6 and 7, he says, he uses this phrase, the God of your fathers. We also struggle with that not many of us have a long history. We don't know anybody past our grandparents. We don't know, I have no idea what my great-grandparents were about. There is no legacy in my family. I hope and pray that some of you have that legacy and it has been a blessing to you. But does Moses, do you, do you think Moses has any idea about his legacy besides that he is a Hebrew? Wouldn't it be nice to learn? To so say, Moses, I don't know if you know who you are. I know you've had an interesting life. As I'm introducing you, I want to introduce to you to who your fathers were. Do you, like Moses, need to be built up to be reminded of who you are in him? I do. Do you need to be reminded of your spiritual heritage? I do. And he said, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face because he was ashamed to be a part of this family. I am not worthy. The Lord continues in verse 7, And surely I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So in one fell swoop, he acknowledges that Moses has a spiritual heritage, the one that maybe he's heard of but is not sure who this is speaking to. He's like, I'm the Lord's your God, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
hopefully and undoubtedly, I'm maybe assuming that he knew some of those stories. He knew the unfaithfulness of Abraham at portions of his life and Isaac and Jacob. But this some 400 years later, as he is in the midst of history, as Abraham told him, in 400 years you'll be enslaved and then I will come and I will set you free. That despite the disobedience, that God has been faithful to them for 400 years and he's going to be faithful now. That before you step into the unknown, God longs to remind you of what he has done in your life as he takes you that next step. As my little girls are squealing because they don't like water and they're scared of it, as I gently remind them, how many showers have you taken? How is that helpful to them? Because in the midst of the circumstance, they're freaked out, but I remind them that the history that you've done this before, that I have done this before, I, ma'am, have taken many showers and it's always going to be okay. And then lastly, these, this great God calls the slaves in Egypt my people. What a merciful God. That regardless of what you're doing, <laughs> regardless of what the world will call you, He will always claim you. Amen? And so why don't we return the favor on others that God calls his own? Well, we call them our brothers and our sisters. Lastly, in this section, he gives a plan and reason for deliverance so that we will not, so that we'll be um, understanding. Look at verse 8 and 9. So I come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. And to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Like he reminds us, like, I, I understand what's going on. But it says, but, it's, but it's, this is my turn. It's my turn to deliver them. It's my power that will release them. And so it's not just to release them to not be slaves, is it? There's a famous line in Deuteronomy chapter 1 where he says, where the, Moses in his great old age is telling the new generation of Israelites, the old generation passed away in the wilderness. God, they didn't just get lost in the woods. Basically, that he had them just moving around until everyone died <laughs> because he judged them. But all of that new generation, all the, basically the children that were born during the wandering years, right, those were the people that were going to come into the promised land. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is God reteaching them the law because they haven't heard it. They were not at Sinai. There's a famous line in Deuteronomy 1. He says, I have... Uh, brought you out to bring you in. And so part of our understanding of salvation has to understand that God has released us from something old to bring us into something new. Not to like, just ha let you have just like a party. Like, hey, recess, guys. 
Homework is over. And so this is something that he says over and over and over again, if we don't miss it, that we've got to be anchored here in the full process of what God uh, wants us to participate as it regards to his salvation. That salvation is not just making you safe, but it's making you sound. He's not just bringing us out of some place that we don't like, but he's bringing us into a new place that we don't know what it is and what it looks like. But he describes it in the physical for them to be a land, to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is absolutely representative of new life in Christ. And so over and over again in these few short verses, we see so much of God's character. Hey, there's nothing else new that we'll cover. That's it. He's just going to beat that drum again and again and again and again. But we, if you're like me, I'm real slow and I need a lot of examples and I need him to say it over and over and over again. He is so kind to us in that way. So the last piece I want to look at before we take some time just to uh, discuss a couple questions is this last, uh, this last chapter, uh, or this last uh, half of the, um, of the book, uh, verses 10 uh, through 20, and he talks about the plan. And so um, Andy will teach next week, and he's going to talk about unpacking a little bit more of this plan. It kind of goes out in more detail, but he tells Moses, like, here is what it's going to look like. Right, what is it going to look like to bring them out, to bring them in? Verse 10, he says, Therefore I come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. They're not supposed to be there. You are not supposed to live in this world. You're not supposed to live in your sin. I love what Jesus says in the New Testament. I have come, right, to put sin away. We was like, well, just forgive it. No, I, I don't want you to have it. <laughs> it's bad for you. We need to incorporate this understanding, right, of our salvation, like what it is. It is a total salvation. It is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He wants you to participate in it. Hey, guys, you're free. The shackles are off. Let's go. There's, like, I got a lot of stuff to teach you to make you into a new people because you have lived in slavery your entire life. Right, Egypt is not where we should be. Verse 12, he says, And they said, Certainly I will be with you, and you shall be, uh, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. You don't belong there, you belong here, where I first revealed myself to you, where I made myself personal. And then he goes on, if you didn't know this, this is one of the most significant passages in the entire Bible, Exodus 3:14. After, uh, after God tells him uh, a few things, therefore, in 10, 11, and 12, 13, then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I've gone to them before, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
Now who? Uh, now they say to me, who is this? Uh, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And then verse 14, this is it. If you got, if you got a digital thing, highlight it. If you got a Bible, like, make sure you know where this is. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So if you ever heard the term tetragrammaton, right, this, uh, it's a cool word. (laughs) And it just is talking about basically the four letters that make up his. In Hebrew, they only use consonants. And so it's Y-H-W-H. There's a slide that where it shows it. So that's what it looks like in Hebrew. If you see that, that's a big deal, right? That's like Rob. You know, write, write our name on everything. <clears throat> so no one actually knows how to pronounce it. Actually, besides, besides uh, Moses here, he heard it. We use the name Yahweh. We put vowels into it. We have no idea how it's actually supposed to be said. But if you've ever thought, I mean, if you really think about and meditate on this, who, how do they know who's my, who was sent to me? And he says, I am. Right? God is not a contingent being. Right? He has always existed. I am. I have been. I am and I will be. Is that comforting? It should be, what's my name? My name's I am. I will always be. And you're my people. And I want you to always be. He furthermore said to Moses, Thus shall say to the sins of Israel, verse 15, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. The memorial name of God. Here's the last thing uh, that I want to touch on as it relates to um, his plan. Right, as he uses this, he uses this term for the Egyptians that I will bring them out under compulsion in verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. When you read through the Exodus story, you will get the sense of like, there's this strain and tension, like what is Pharaoh thinking? (laughs) Why will he not let these people go after like five or six plagues? When we possess something, right, thinking about like what the good it does for us, like we have a hard time of letting it go. Anybody in here have... Uh, something that you would call a sinful habit, not somebody else. Like you judge it. You're like, hey, this is sinful. I do this, right? And there's a reason like you like it. It's my pretty, whatever it might be. (laughs) And you have a hard time of letting that go, yes? Pharaoh has approximately 5 million people at his beck and call that he can do, ask to do whatever he wants and meet any need he wants. He's not going to let that go except under compulsion. 
Can you imagine the compulsion that would be necessary to let five million people go that are free labor, that will do whatever you want them to do? I need you to understand that God's powerful. Like, do you understand the grip of a tyrant on a people? It's not just like, fine. He had to pry those people out of Pharaoh's cold hand. Finger by finger. God has won you a mighty victory. So much so that he was like, get, it's not like, okay, he is like, get out of here. You understand the work that God had to do to do that? That is his plan, that I'm going to make this where he says, get my sin out of here. Nothing like that has ever been done in the history of the world. That a God has made a king let go of something that precious. And that same power that freed five million people is the same power that is in each of you to, and in me to get our sin out of our lives. He cares that much about you. The things that we hold on to are that bad for us. See, the taskmaster has to be humbled. And there is a bounty after defeat. There's this throwaway line in the New Testament, and we'll, we'll end here. Luke 10, 18. And it's after, um, a little bit into Gen- uh, Jesus' ministry, and he makes this statement, and he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Right, and in, in, uh, the guys might be getting this, but he's basically just saying, like, I saw Satan get dunked on. <laughs> and it's helping us understand that he is defeated. Right, he is too small. I don't know how to do the dance, the too small dance, Right. I was watching Satan fall like heaven from lightning. He didn't kind of wander out, right? He's kicked out off the mountain. God's the king. And so in this year, right, we need to see and feel God in control like we never have before. Right, this Exodus story, this is a big story. Right, we... This is a big story with a universal God who cares about individuals and who uses individuals to bring about redemption. I think of all the ways that he could have done this, but he's trying to do this in such a way that we learn how he's going to do things in the future and how he always does things. So take a few minutes, and I want you to kick that around about the bigness of God and our need for him, right? And about maybe how some of these themes that we've just kind of poked into that, again, for the rest of the book will be repeated ad nauseum. He does not want you to miss these things over and over and over again. He is going to beat that drum. And so take, uh, take about five minutes and uh, just talk about thoughts about our need of a big God and what he's talking about doing here. He's told us his plan. It's pretty awesome. Discuss. So here's, uh, I just want to uh, end with this. 
Redemption, mercy, and grace are God's ideas. And for us to know them well, our God must be big enough to wield them. Not just in our personal lives, but, those, uh, but the lives of those in the whole world. We need a big God for that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for um, just all the help to get over the technical difficulties. <laughs> but Father, you are a God that's bigger than that. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your redemption. Father, that, we, that these ideas would be seared in our heads. That we cannot be redeemed unless you do it. There's no one else that can give us the grace that we need to keep moving forward. And Father, we require mercy because we have gone astray. Lord, in the, um, in the everyday moments of our lives, Father, would you uh, be big in our lives? Lord, would you lift up our heads and to see you as you really are? Father, would we get smaller in our own lives so that we can learn to live them as you've designed them to be? For your purposes, for your glory, in your family. We love you, Father. Um, and may we give you the worship that you deserve as we gather um, as a community. In Christ's name, amen.